Open your Bibles if you have them. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 to 16 this morning. So 2 Timothy 3, 16, 16 and 17. I don't know what I just said, but 16 and 17 is what I meant. I feel like I said something different than that. 3, 16, 17. Well, if you're ever stranded in the wilderness and you want to find safety, you want to get out, there's a few things that you're going to have to do. First, you're going to need to find water. That might be digging a hole and finding moisture and letting it collect in the hole. You might have to do that. Finding a stream nearby. Perhaps you have some sort of bottle that you can put a leaf in and collect the rain as it comes down. You're going to have to find water because you can survive for many days without food, but you can only survive a couple of days without water. Water is urgent. Next is shelter. You're going to have to provide some sort of shelter for yourself. Hyperthermia and hypothermia could either one set in and could kill you, so you're going to have to get some weather-insulated shelter. With that, you're probably also going to need to build a fire, because obviously if you find water that is contaminated, you're going to need some way of boiling it. Plus, if you happen to find food, you're going to need some way of cooking it. So you're going to need to build a fire. And then after all of that's done, you're eventually going to have to find food of some sort. You're going to have to fish for it. You might have to build a tool like a trap or a spear to catch it. But somehow you're going to have to find food. And I know what you're thinking. Did we come to a survivalist lesson? Is that Bear Grylls up there? Yes, I know. I'm so easily confused with the noted outdoorsman. Right? I know that's what you're thinking when you're looking at me. Man, he can survive. I bet that guy, if I'm stranded, I want to be with that guy because I know he's going to, I know, I know what you're thinking. If you stray, this is another thing that's, that's important for survival. If you're, if you're looking at moving to a safer location where perhaps you can get rescued, you're going to have to figure all those things out before you move. Because if you stray too far from the source of life, Death is knocking at your door. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to give us the way in which the new created beings, members of God's new creation, these new created beings, he's going to give us the way that those new created beings receive life and sustain life in the wilderness that is this world. Let's read. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that this word that we have read, that we are now going to talk about, would sink in deep into our hearts, that all that I say would be true and edifying to your body, that it would build us up, that it would unite us in faith, that it would encourage us in love, that it would inspire us to walk out and live not only holy lives, but lives on mission for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Last Sunday, we began a series on the church. And if you're coming into this for the first time and you intend on seeing this through, it might be worth going back at some point this week and, and listening to the first sermon in this series because, uh, so that you can keep track with what I'm saying and what we're being taught through this, through this series. The, the working definition that I used last week for the church, it's not original to me, but it is a definition that we're working through, is this. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify Him together by serving Him in His world. The church is a, it's a body of people. We're a, a group of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ. And our, our job, our agenda that He's put before us is to glorify Him together. So together, we're coming together, we're glorifying Him, and we're serving Him in the world around us. Now, my hope is that as we go through this series and begin to understand the DNA of the church is that we'll be able to do a couple of things. First, is that we'll see a lot of biblical connections. That's priority number one. I want us to not only say this is true of the church, but I want us to see it in the whole of Scripture. And so what that means is we're going to read a lot of verses of Scripture. Especially today, we're going to read a lot of verses of Scripture. They're going to help us see that what, we're, what I'm saying in this passage is also true in the rest of Scripture as a whole. It's pointing us in that direction. And so seeing the biblical connections. But second, I want us to see the logical connections. That not only is the Bible pointing this direction, but that it also makes sense. If this is what we are as a people, then this is what we must do. As we understand our DNA, what really makes us up, we understand what our core values are. We understand what we're supposed to be about as God's people. And then through all of that, we can better assess how healthy we are as a church so that as we come together, striving toward health, we can reach into the future with a very clear purpose and mission for the world around us. So last week, I wanted you to see that Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. The kingdom of God that we were seeing in the Old Testament, that we have heard rumblings of, that, the, that Israel was initially promised would come about, ultimately would come about in Jesus. Initially, David is put on the throne, and there's an anticipation that the kingdom of God is coming. Ultimately, though, I wanted you to see that Jesus has finally inaugurated that kingdom. He has set the kingdom of God down on earth and he is welcoming members into that community and that the church is a believing community that is citizens of the kingdom of God that we're called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him. And that we're then given the indwelling Holy Spirit as a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That our hearts were a heart of stone, but have been changed for a heart of flesh that we might believe God and that we might obey His will for our lives by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That we have become not only the fulfillment of this prophecy, but by the Bible's definition, a new created order. That we've become a new creation. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God has made you and me in the church a new creation. He has raised you from the dead, he says. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. He has made you alive. He sent prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament to tell us that there would be a day coming when God was going to take away our heart of stone and he was going to give us a heart of flesh. And we see that he has fulfilled that by giving to his new covenant, New Testament people, a heart of flesh in the Holy Spirit. That we could now obey him. We have the ability, ability by the indwelling Holy Spirit to obey His commands for our life. And then that renders us able to actually please Him. This is the new creation. Well, this morning, we come to the purpose of God's Word. What it, what it functions as in the life of the church. And we're not only talking about what Paul says God's Word is, but I want us to understand why that Word is so fundamental, so much a part of the DNA of what we are as a church. These verses are probably very familiar to most people in this room. If you've grown up in the church, you're probably aware of a lot of doctrines that are built on these two verses, and rightly so. There should be doctrines that are built on these verses that we stand on as Christians that we believe. But specifically, I want us to think about why the Scriptures are fundamental to the very function of the church. They actually tell us quite a bit about what we're supposed to do then. So in these two verses, there are two simple, yet very profound points that Paul makes, and I want us to see them. The first is this. The Word of God is necessary to give life. The Word of God is necessary to give life. The first seven words of verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in a Southern Baptist church, there are going to be passages that you as a preacher go into knowing that there's going to be very little pushback amongst the congregation. In general, these two verses would certainly fall under that. Where most of the people in the congregation are going to agree wholeheartedly. Our church would join in the line of many other churches in this community and, and many other communities where we would say without hesitation, we believe the Bible. Amen? Amen. Right. See? General agreement. I, I told you that would probably be the case. But I have often found that those texts of Scripture where there is general agreement, it's these doctrines where there's widespread agreement in the church that we spend the least amount of time actually thinking about and actually talking about together. Because let's move on to where we disagree because we'd rather fight, right? It's the ones where we agree that we kind of steer clear of a lot. And so we don't think about deeply. Well, these first seven words in verse 16 pack an incredible punch in what Paul is actually expecting us as believers to not only believe but affirm wholeheartedly about the Word of God. He tells us that the Scriptures are God-breathed. In other words, 
The scriptures are from God's very mind. And he has delivered them through the pen of an author in such a way so as to transfer his very mind through the heart of a man in such a way so as to preserve the character and the persona of that individual, that writer, and yet not lose a single word of its godness. So God has transferred, has spoken to a writer, writers over the course of many generations, and they have written the words of God, divinely inspired, yet He did it in such a way so as to preserve each of their unique abilities and talents, writing styles, and all of those things, but it doesn't lose a single word of its godness. So these are, there are two things that I think he means when he says Scripture is God-breathed. And I think Scripture backs this up. The first is that Scripture is authoritative. When it's God, since it's God-breathed, it means that it's authoritative. But you might have to ask before we even get there, what does he mean by Scripture? Because you're going to hear some people telling you that what he means by Scriptures is the Old Testament. And what he's telling Timothy is don't throw out the Old Testament. It's still good. It's still able to teach you. It's still able to correct you. What I'm not saying is throw out the Old Testament. That, that's not entirely what Paul is saying. Because twice in Paul's writings, two of which are in 1 Corinthians, but several times actually in his writings, he gives us a different understanding than that. He includes the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then the second reference, he makes it even more clear. At the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul is expecting that the letters that he is writing to the churches that they would receive having authority, but specifically having divine authority. That these are coming straight from God. He says similar things in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, also in Colossians, and he gives indications that he sees the letters that are coming from him, that are coming from the rest of the apostles, as having the same divine authority as the Old Testament. Paul also says in 1 Timothy 5.18, this may come as a little bit of a shock. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Those are quotes from two different parts of Scripture. The first one is from Deuteronomy, but the second one doesn't even occur in the Old Testament. The second one occurs in the Gospel of Luke. Paul is writing to, uh, to, to Timothy, and he's, ex he's explaining to him from the Scriptures one of which is the Old Testament, one of which is the New Testament, that what we're saying is true. He calls them both Scriptures. So when he says all Scripture is God-breathed, he clearly wants us to have in our mind both Old Testament and what we now know as the New Testament, already beginning to form even in the first century. What do we mean by authoritative? What, what, is, what does it mean that the Scriptures are, are authoritative? And specifically, 
For it to be God-breathed, that means that it is inerrant and infallible. Scripture is inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means that the Scriptures are without error. Infallible means there can be no errors. They're incapable of producing error. There's a small but very important difference there. Inerrant, no errors. Infallible, incapable of errors. See, because the Scriptures are breathed out by God, that necessitates them being without error. If they have error, they can't be breathed out by God. If they're breathed out by God, they can't have error. They're incapable of error. Why? Because Numbers 23, 19 tells us this. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? John, 30, John 10, 35 says, Scripture cannot be broken. That's Jesus speaking. Hebrews 3, 7 says this, Therefore, the, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. And then one chapter later, the same author in Hebrews 4, 7 says, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in, other wo- in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So one passage he says, the Holy Spirit said this. The next passage he says, David says this, quoting the same passage working together. So it's clear these are God's words. And if God has spoken and God does not lie, there cannot be error in them. So the scriptures are making a huge claim. You understand this? The scriptures are making a huge claim about themselves that we are without error. These scriptures that you are reading are without error. Saying first, God has superintended these scriptures through human authors. Second, that these words have authority, the, same, the kind of authority from God Himself. And third, that the God behind these words is incapable of error. They are These are error-free. Now, that is a bold claim. That's not the same thing, by the way, as saying the translation that I have is without error. It's saying in the original manuscripts, when written down by the pen of the author, God superintended them in such a way, the original manuscripts, so as to be without error. After man touches them and translates them, obviously there are changes and things like that that we have to work through and parse through that we're not going to talk too much about today. But the original manuscripts, the scriptures that we have, are without error. That's a bold claim because not only... I could never produce something like this. There's not a sermon out there that I'm willing to stand by and say that is without error. I certainly hope it is. I certainly intend for it to be. There's not a sermon. There's not a thing I've written. In fact, I am so fallible, everything I write is bound to have some sort of fallibility to it. And even the autocorrect that we have created to correct our fallibility is, as we have experienced, also fallible. Amen? So one reason we say that the Word of God is necessary to give life is precisely because of their authority. They tell us what is really real. They teach us what is really true about the world around us because God is incapable of telling lies. 
He's telling it like it is, in other words, and they tell us what is really true. And he was not going to mislead us. But that's not the only reason. The second reason that these words are necessary for life, the word of God is necessary for life, is because God's word creates. God's word creates. Meaning that they create life. This extends all the way back, think with me, back into the Old Testament. As early as Genesis 1-3, it says, And God said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Well, it seems like a small word to make such a big point. God's words create. You see it right there. He spoke. He didn't wave his wand like Harry Potter. He didn't blink like I dream of genie. He didn't wiggle his nose like bewitched. He spoke. And in case you missed that point that subtly made in the first chapter of Genesis, the rest of the biblical authors want you to understand this very clearly. Because in Psalm 33, 6, author says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was created, how? By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 2 Peter 3, 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So one thing becomes abundantly clear in the scriptures and that the authors of the biblical text are drawing our minds to and want us to understand is that everything that was made popped into existence by the word of God, by the breath of his mouth. It was God breathed, you might say. His breath, his speech, God's word creates. But church, listen, God doesn't just create galaxies through his word. This is why this is fundamentally important for us to understand. He doesn't just create galaxies through his word. He creates his people through his word. He creates his people through his word. Now think about what the Bible is telling us about the Word of God for just a second. I want you, I'm going to read some scriptures, and I want you to pay attention to the progression from Old Testament to New Testament through these scriptures that we're going to read. The first is Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. You may remember that, Isaiah 55. God is talking about, through the prophet Isaiah, the new covenant that's coming about. He's promising it, okay? And this is what he says about it. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So I'm sending out my word into the world and it's going to spawn this new created order. John 3, 34 then says, John's telling us about Jesus. For he whom God has sent 
utters the words of God. So John has told us back in John 1, you'll remember, in the beginning was the word. He identifies Jesus as the word. Now he's talking about Jesus here in John 3. And he says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. And then just a few chapters later, Jesus has just been preaching and he's talking and a lot of people have left and the 12 are standing around and he says to them in John 6, 67, do you want to go, as w- go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then just two chapters later, Jesus says to the Pharisees, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then just a couple chapters after that, Jesus says to his disciples, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he's setting up an understanding for how the word of God actually works in the lives of the people. But then the apostles pick up on this and Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And then Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, how? In their preaching that he just told you, you heard the word of God from us. You accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul's going about preaching the scriptures. He's writing to them and and he's, he's demonstrating them for them. But do you see the progression going through the Old Testament and the New Testament into the New Covenant? God is delivering into the world. Jesus was the one he was talking about. Jesus comes into the world. This is what he's talking about in Isaiah 55. He's coming and he's going he's to, my word is coming forth out of my mouth. It's not going to return void. It's going to do what I, what I sent it to accomplish. Jesus is the one he's talking about, the living embodiment of the word of God. And what does Jesus tell you he's doing? He goes about and he's speaking the words of God. And he tells you, New Testament people, including the apostles, don't worry about it. Speak the words of God because my sheep hear my voice. They recognize when it is the words of God. They are right now dead in their trespasses and sins. But when you speak the words of God, there is a creative power to them. And they awaken the dead. So Paul and the rest of the apostles see themselves as preaching the words of God. They go before people, they take the scriptures, they expound them in front of the people, and dead men who are dead in their trespasses and sins come alive. The power of not their voice, but of God's voice. Jesus' sheep hear their preaching as the very words of God, and they believe and are saved And so you will notice in our passage this morning, just a few verses after he tells Timothy exactly what the scriptures are, 
In chapter 4, verse 2, it's just a few verses down from where we are. What does he charge Timothy to do? Preach the word. You're going into this church, Timothy. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to preach the word. He doesn't say anything about hiring a whole bunch of staff, building a ton of buildings. He doesn't say anything about that. What are you going to do with parking? You've got to straighten that out. He doesn't say any of it. He says, preach the word because there's going to be people that will not entertain sound doctrine. Preach the word. The word which we see through the rest of Scripture is synonymous with the Scriptures. That same word that he's talking about, it's Scripture that he's talking about, which the Bible says we all have sitting in front of us, Old Testament and New Testament. Preach the word. The word of God is necessary to give life. That's the only way you're going to wake the dead, Timothy is if you preach the word. The life that it gives is necessary for us because as, the Ephesians, as, as he points out in Ephesians, and as we said last week, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. How? By his word. Therefore, the church preaches and teaches the word of God. We are Christ's body. Our blood is Christ's blood. And so we eat and we breathe the word because only his word will create life. Church, my prayer is that we will see, especially when we look around at the world around us, we will see how urgent it is that we understand this very thing. That we understand how urgent it is that we consume the text of Scripture with a ravenous appetite and we give to our children that same desire. And you have to understand that desire that we want to give them for the Word, it doesn't come about by fun and games. You cannot produce it by fun and games. You can draw crowds, but you cannot introduce to them a ravenous appetite for the word without giving to them the word. You have to keep feeding it to them in order for them to develop an appetite for it. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. May that be a description of every member of our church. That we bleed bibline and we donate our blood any chance we get. So the first yet profound point I think that Paul makes in these two verses is that the word of God is necessary for life. But that's not all that we believe about the word. It's necessary to give life for sure. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It has creating power. Yes. But no, that is not all we believe about the word. In fact, all of that is worthless unless we also believe the second point that he makes, that the word of God is sufficient 
to sustain life. It's necessary to give it, but it is sufficient to sustain it. Look at the rest of the passage here. He says, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible doesn't only create that initial spark of life that raises the man or woman dead in their trespasses and sins. It is sufficient to sustain him all the way through his life. So in other words, the regular preaching of the Word of God, it teaches you, it reproves you, and that that means that it expresses disapproval of sins in your life. It will tell you really, truly, it will not hold back any punch, and it will tell you that is sin, so it, it, it corrects you. It trains you, uh, it, it, it reproves you, it, tra- it corrects you, that is, it shows you what to do now. This is, that was a terrible way of thinking, that was, that was a, a, a bad heart, that is sin, this is correct. And then it trains you in righteousness. That is, it teaches you how to live out the righteousness that you have by faith in Christ. It teaches you how to live that out now in practical ways. And all of that helps to fulfill a purpose in the life of a Christian. And that is equipping you for every good work that you could possibly do. Remember Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan? He tells the devil this in Matthew 4, 4. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We've already established, he's talking about the scriptures there. Man does not live by bread alone. He lives by the bread of the scriptures. So the scriptures are the sustenance because they nourish the soul. Now, why is it the sustenance? Because the purpose of the church is to glorify God. And what we find is that one way God's people glorify Him is by actually producing good works that He has prepared for us to do. So in other words, we engage in ministry to one another. Those are good works that He has prepared for us to do. We engage in ministry to the world around us. Those are also good works that He's prepared for us to do. But Paul, tell, Paul tells us in the Scriptures, both here and in other places, that the way we're equi- equipped to live out the righteousness that He has given to us in Christ, the way that we're prepared to go about doing this kind of ministry is the regular teaching of the Scriptures. In other words, the righteousness that the Scriptures produce in the first point, they bring you alive. It's demonstrated in the good works that it causes you to continue to be able to do in the days to come. But it's not just enough for me to say that. I want us to see that in the whole of Scripture. I want us to understand the nature of what we're doing together, how this informs our gathering together as a body. There's three passages that I want to read, and I want us to think about, again, this progression as they go. First are in the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do 
nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, but this, my Father, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So let's think about just what he said for just a second. Let's pause there before we go to the second one, what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus is telling them that in order to bear fruit, you have to abide in me, and I have to abide in you. Those two things have to be true in order for you to bear fruit. And to bear fruit basically means to produce the works that a righteous person produces. To produce the works of a person that is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus tells them that the key is that we abide in him, which means to believe, to continue to trust in him, and that he abides in us. But then in verse 7, he changes it just slightly to give us the meaning of that. He tells us to abide in him, continue to believe, have faith, and his word abides in us. That's how Christ abides in us, is that his word abides in us. It becomes part of our DNA. We eat and we breathe it. So for Jesus to abide in us means his word abides in us. In which case, we bear fruit. Now we turn to Paul in Ephesians 2.10. He tells us this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 2 that our resurrection, remember Ephesians 2, 1 is you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. He raised you from the dead, we said, by his word. So the point of that resurrection from the dead, from our trespasses and sins, is to live in this new created life for which the purpose is not only to glorify God, but to do so through our works, through our good works. So we are supposed to not only be raised, not only believe, not only worship the Lord, but also to proceed forth in the world around us, acting like we're part of a new creation, because we are. So that everywhere we go, that's where the kingdom of God goes with us. And that people around us are touched and impacted by that very kingdom of God that we represent. He created us for that purpose, to give witness to his kingdom in the world around us. But wait, he's not finished. Just two chapters later, Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, uh, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ For whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's equipping. Same word he uses in in Timothy. Same root word he uses in Timothy. He says here, he's equipping the saints. How does he equip the saints? Well, when he put together the church, he left behind some people. He says there he left behind apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What do they all have in common? They all are gifted by the Holy Spirit to utilize the Word of God to teach others inside and outside the church. To preach to others inside and outside the church. Notice he doesn't say the unity of the church is built together by the givers. Certainly, God did leave a spirit of generosity, and it is a gift He has clearly given to people in the church. But He doesn't mention that gift here. He mentions it in other places, but He doesn't mention it here as part of what builds the body together into a unified whole. He doesn't say that. He doesn't list a bunch of people with varying different gifts that He's put in the church. He lists specifically those who use the Bible for what purpose? He says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body until, uh, of Christ until maturity. That is the job of every pastor, of every shepherd, of every elder in the churches. Is to equip the saints how Preaching the word. We don't have to guess. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 4.2, preach the word. After telling them that all the scriptures are God-breathed, what charge does he come to? Preach the word. Not only because it gives life to the dead, because it is sufficient to sustain the life of of the church and to produce the good works to which the church is called to live in and do. Scour the Bible. And time and again, you will find that it is the Word of God taught and preached to the Christians that produces fruit 10, 50, and 100 fold. You don't only see what it's doing. Christian... Many times you're not going to see what it's doing. Struggle in your faith, temptation, stay away from church. It's Satan's scheme to deprive you of life-giving nutrients. And you don't always understand what it's doing. Sometimes you don't know what it's doing. You come and you sit down and you've just gone through this really difficult thing and you hear this scripture and you're like, what does this have to do with me? I don't even know. 
but keep coming back time and time again. And slowly but surely, there begins to be growth in your life. Real, spiritual, sin-confronting, God-honoring, God-loving, God-worshipping growth that is produced in your life by the hearing of the preached Word of God. You can't see it from day to day. Neither can a plant account for each water droplet. Now, I know that most of you will agree that the Scriptures are God-breathed. Amen! Scriptures are God-breathed. Inerrant and infallible. Amen, amen, preacher, preach. It's what our world needs to hear. But do you believe they are sufficient? Do you believe the Word is so sufficient that if the church preaches the truth of God's Word, God will produce fruit in its members. And that that is what is required of us as a church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a church's right and true preaching and teaching of the Word is the first sign of health in a body? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the word is so sufficient that if it is taught and preached rightly, that it will bear fruit in the lives of the saints in the gathered assembly? Do you believe that? Do you believe that even if the word is taught and it's boring, that even that boring preaching will bear fruit, not because of the preacher, but because it's the Word of God. Do you believe in that kind of sufficiency of the Word? When was the last time you looked at numbers and judged the success of a church by the number of people on its role? Health of a church by the number of people on its roll. <laughs> they got a lot of people going to that church. They must be doing something right. You ever thought that? When was the last time you looked at the money in the church and you judged the health of that church by how much or how little money it had? <laughs> Did you see that new building they built? Something must be going right there. When was the last time you looked at a dwindling size of a student ministry and recommended strategies other than teach the word to our kids? Give them the unfiltered Bible because it is sufficient and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that our students, if they are truly followers of Christ, may be complete and equipped for every good work. Somewhere along the way, we convince ourselves 
that our job was to grow churches instead of make disciples. There's a difference. You can grow a church actually pretty easily. You can bring in, actually sell everything you own. This is, the, this is church growth strategy 101. You want to hear it? Here it is. I don't have this plan. This is free. Church growth strategy 101, sell everything you own first. Move into something that's cheap, really cheap. Take every ounce of money you have and pay for the best band you possibly can. Hot music, good sound system. I mean, rocking. Doesn't matter what they sing, it just needs to be good. Whatever's on the radio, that's fine. Just play it. The newer, the better. Whatever else you've got left, get a preacher. He could be okay. Doesn't matter too much, just okay. Before long, you won't be able to close the doors. It will be so packed. That's not growth. That's swelling. They often look the same, don't they? You break your ankle, you got swelling. Guess what? Your old shoe ain't going to fit. Don't confuse it with growth. It's not. It's not growth. It wasn't derived by the preaching and teaching of the Word. Somewhere along the way, we told ourselves that the real strategy, the real purpose of the church, the real, real purpose of ministers is to grow the church. That's what we're supposed to do. You need to come in and you need to grow the church. And so we look at things that are tangible. We look at numbers, we look at money, and we say, look, if it's shrinking, you're not doing your job. If it's growing, you're doing your job. No, that's a football coach. That's not a pastor. In fact, if that was the sign of success, Jesus would have been a failure in ministry. Go read John chapter 6. He starts off with thousands of people coming after him because of the loaves of bread that he's just multiplied. And he tells them, you just want the bread. That's all you want. You don't want me. And then he tells them, if you want me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, whoa, what? I didn't sign up for that. And they all leave. And by the end of chapter 6, Jesus has only the 12 around him. That's where he asked Peter, you going to go away too? Peter says, you have the words of life. Right after that, Jesus says, one of you 12 is a devil. By the end of chapter 6, he really only has 11 people as a part of his church. Because he told them the truth. If it was true that finances were the barometer of success there's not, or, or, or health, there's not one church in Africa that could ever be called healthy. Because they've got nothing. It's a testimony to the fact that we as a collective body have believed that that is a barometer of health. Because ultimately we believe the prosperity gospel to some extent. It's infiltrated our minds. Certainly, the making of disciples often involves a numeric growth. Because many times, the making of disciples includes new converts. Which, by the way, the transfer of one member from one church to another church does not mean that church grew. 
Any more than pulling on one side of your shoelaces, making the other one shorter makes your shoelaces grow. Of course it doesn't. A transfer from a a member from one church to another is not growth. New converts are growth. And so many times you see the making of disciples produces new converts and there is numeric growth in a church. But growth might also mean People that have been going to church for some time are just now understanding what it means to follow Christ. They're just now being confronted in sins that they've held on to for years and that they've never been able to shake. They grow in their understanding of the Word of God as they study it. Their hearts are growing more inclined toward Him in worship. Their desires are changing at home so that they're winning struggles with sin. They're leading their family. They're reading the Bible with their kids. They're they're practicing family worship at home during the week. But that's a lot harder to measure. It's almost like the work of God you can't always see. But let me tell you, Paul says that is a work of the Scriptures. That the Scriptures are sufficient to produce for the church all that it needs. So the church bleeds bibline because we believe that only God's Word gives and sustains new creation life. You hear that? It gives and sustains new creation life. God is speaking through the very words of these scriptures. And he's calling out to dead men. Just like he did in the very beginning pages of Genesis. Where he spoke into nothing. And he created out of nothing everything that the world has in it. So he is doing with the new creation. He is speaking to dead men. And they are coming up out of their graves in repentance of sin. This is central to our mission. It is what we do. You have no idea how okay I am with being boring. It might make you uncomfortable if you really knew how okay I am with being boring. Let them leave because we're boring. But don't let them ever accuse us of being bored. You understand there's a difference. Not when we've got the God-breathed scriptures sitting right in front of us. The very words of God that are calling out to us to be taught, to be corrected, to be trained. Church, these are the words of God. They tell us who He is. They correct us in error. And may it never be said of Emmanuel Baptist Church. You know why they didn't survive? They strayed too far from the scriptures. From the source of life. And they withered on the vine. Death was knocking at their door. They say we're boring. Fine. I can deal with boring. But not because we wandered too far away from the scriptures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us hearts 
dead set on your word so that we demand it be taught. That we do not tolerate the lack of biblical fidelity inside this church. That we demand what we sing be derived from Scripture. What we pray be derived from Scripture. What we read be Scripture. What we recite be supporting Scripture. What we preach be directly from Scripture so that we may say, we gave you, Tuscaloosa, the word, and you received it not as though it was the words of men, because it was the very words of God. May that be our heartbeat in this community, that we would be unapologetic in the way we go about it, and that we would strive to help our fellow man around us see the appeal through your word of your kingdom. We win them with scriptures so that we win them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.